Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial one 855 625 8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website and follow the link there. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages and you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. Theories and Safety The Pullman strike taught lessons to both labor and industrialists. Labor learned that work stoppages would have to face not only corporate power, but also the anti-lobby bias of the courts. Capital learned breaking a strike could still be costly and inconvenient. The progressive movement started to expand and have successes during the start of the 1900s, especially in efforts to study and reform factory conditions and to intercede in a range of unacceptable factors of modern-day life, such as child labor, tainted food, urban tenant and slums, and municipal government corruption. A huge influx of immigrants taxed the civic resources of many communities. This increase was around the turn of the century with a record number in 1907 of 1,285,000 immigrants. Muckrakers, journalists who reported on the conditions of slums, not only reported on the squalor of urban slums, but also on the red light districts and city corruption, forced their readers into looking at a fallen nation, but also to rediscover the country's fundamental values. Progressives, in an attempt by the middle class to readjust the chief organizing principles of society, a call to a new public morality, this meant for labor and industrialists working together so as to leave the burden on charities. Part of the reasons behind the progressive movement was the popularity of socialism, In 1912, the nation had 1,039 socialists in seats of authority. Eugene Debs ran as a socialist presidential candidate five times. In 1920, he received over one million votes and was in an Atlanta prison at the time. At the same time, a movement known as City Beautification started, the idea being to create urban beauty and architecture. In 1893, at the World's Columbia Exposition, this city's beautification ideal was explored. 
held in Chicago under the control of architect Daniel Burnham and sculptor Augustus St. Gudens, their influence was widely seen in the early decades of the 20th century, mostly in government buildings like 20 Center Street in New York City. The approach to Manhattan Bridge, Grand Central Station, statuary and fountains. Progressives went beyond the usual set and included directors of corporations with a new form of management style known as welfare capitalism, an attempt to turn a worker and their family members into members of the middle class, stabilizing workforces through employee benefits such as pensions, profit sharing, and a variety of social, financial, and recreational perks. By 1914, an estimated 2,500 firms were using welfare capitalism as a way to retain workers. Even U.S. Steel, a very anti-union company, had adopted pensions and stock participation, the largest corporation to do so at that time. The National Cash Register, headquartered in Dayton, Ohio, were the nation's leading effort in the field. Dayton was the Silicon Valley of its time. Not only did the cash register come from there, but the airplane, the crankless car, leaded gasoline, and the folded ice cream carton. National Cash Register, led by John H. Patterson, strove to apply progressive ideas to the workplace, establishing free daycare, after-work education, organized sports, teams and facilities, on-site medical clinic, as well as split shifts for female employees so they could arrive and depart plant independently of men. Patterson also was active in bringing Dayton the reformist city manager system, designed to rid city government of bossism and city corruption in American cities. Patterson also campaigned for city parks, libraries, concerts, new health and sanitation rules to improve levees, bridges, and roads after the flood of 1912. Philadelphia engineer and businessman Fred Taylor was famous for his emphasis on disciplined plant efficiency, a concept that became known as scientific management. His idea for industrial reform started from the position that the craft tradition and its reliance on the expertise of veteran workers had been made obsolete by automation and that a standardization of methods was needed to redefine the factory worker's role. Foreman would be replaced by company-level planning committees, old methods replaced by practices based on the scientific analysis of the task. Employees would be assigned a job based on their aptitude and ability, then trained specifically for that position so that it could be performed with maximum efficiency. The AFL and other organized labor did not like Taylor's emphasis on taking decision-making away from workers. Taylor suggested that workers generally were unqualified to judge their own labor from a scientific standpoint, and that such perspective need be left to management. Labor had real strong issues with his proposal that differential wages be paid to those workers who showed themselves most efficient. As such, an idea was like the hated bonus system. 
By 1911, the AFL had a formal resolution denouncing its policies. Samuel Gompers feared that wage workers might come to be viewed as mere machines and mocked the idea that workers' jobs should be standardized and their motion power brought up to the highest possible perfection in all respects, including speed. Labor managed to force Taylor to appear twice before congressional committees to justify his methods. Already famous for placing his lectures at Harvard with profane shop language, in one congressional hearing he became so outraged that much of his testimony had to be struck from the record. Few workers ever tried Taylor's recommendations to the letter, and after an initial public infatuation with scientific management, critics were heard to declare it a pseudoscience, mocking some of its more laughable concepts such as scientific shoveling. While labor resented the systemizing of work, even the AFL by the mid-1920s had grown accepting of this need to define the parameters of a job in terms of of its role in production, efficiency, employee well-being. The progressives' idea were first tested at the turn of the century as the nation repeatedly faced the prospect of lengthy coal strikes. The anthracite mining region had been dominated by the Irish, but at the end of the century, the Italian and Eastern European immigrants who would work for low wages made organizing the region difficult. When in 1900, the UMW, United Mine Workers, started talking about strikes, immigrants and natives were ready. Marcus Hanna, a U.S. senator from Ohio, shared the progressive perspective that by showing labor organizations respect, management fostered greater productivity and minimized potential disruptions from socialists and other radical elements. A man who won't meet his men halfway is a goddamn fool. He became a labor conciliator for the National Civic Federation, founded in 1896, a group of businessmen, reformers, and mainstream labor leaders that sought to improve Americans' industrial relations. But because of the mix of industrialists and labor leaders, the organization never gained the trust of labor or management. Hannah wanting... McKinley as president in 1900, with the help of J.P. Morgan, was able to obtain a settlement for the coal miners of a 10% pay raise. The mine refused to acknowledge the union, but they sent members back to work, helping to ensure McKinley's re-election. September 1901, McKinley was assassinated by the anarchist Leon Zagos, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt becoming president. Roosevelt and Hanna did not have the same report, and it was tested in 1902 when the 1900 coal agreement expired. The UMW made new demands. Wages remained unacceptable. The 10-hour day was too long, and the operators laying off and rehiring based on short-term needs was unacceptable. Adding that miners lived in company towns that were unsanitary hovels, their meager salaries were gouged at the company stores. Roosevelt was as contemptuous of industrial tycoons as he was of radical change seekers. Although he had once said, I strongly favor labor unions. If I were a wage worker in a big city, I should certainly join one. 1902 
confronting the UMW's demands, Roosevelt had reason to not trust Hannah, who appeared to have presidential ambitions for the 1904 election. It would certainly help this ambition if Hannah could again deliver labor peace to the nation. It would take monumental effort if the UMW went on strike. It would affect 357 collieries and nearly 150,000 miners, with millions of citizens being inconvenienced and suffering. The strike started on June 2nd. The mine operators used the 1870s method, sending in scabs and industry cops. Fortunately for the strikers, Pennsylvania had a new law. Miners had to be licensed. Thus, the operators had few scabs that could be used. An advantage to the strikers was the character of UMW President John Mitchell, a hard-working miner at age 13, master workman of his night's local by 17. He ingratiated himself with the ethnically diverse miner. Mitchell did not demand UMW workers in the soft coal mines region strike in sympathy, and he agreed to submit the entire strike issues to arbitration to the NCF are another impartial entity. Also, it helped the strikers to have a ready-made villain in George Bayer, an attorney and president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, who was unyielding and refused to allow any union to dictate terms to mine owners. That Bayer and the mine owners refused the UMW's call for fair arbitration did not go well with the public, making them think that they did not care about the suffering that a coal famine would have on the public, and that they wanted such a famine to drive up prices. For the coal operators, the issue was the closed shop, a union's exclusive representation of all labor working at any particular work site. Unionists felt this was key to union representation, unifying them as to demands, strike votes, and acceptance of management offers, capitalists saying it was ruinous. Bayer once said, The rights of laboring men will be protected and cared for, not by labor agitators, but by the Christian men to whom God, in his infinite wisdom, have given the control of property interest of this country. Bayer was only paraphrasing the common adage that the best men should rule. But at the time, when it appeared likely Bear's obstinacy might cause a coal shortage, his assurance that God was on his side stunned and offended many Americans. This remark would be recalled as the cold fall nights arrived in big cities and the strike-induced shortage of coal to institutions such as schools, factories, hospitals, and hotels. Prices climbed from $5 a ton to $20 a ton. This hit the poor the hardest as they often bought coal in small amounts. The public called on the government to do something to end the strike and their suffering. The operators were thinking the government needed to act, but their idea was different. They wanted Roosevelt to get the court to issue an injunction under the Sherman Act. Roosevelt refused, feeling that organized labor deserved a hearing. He dispatched his commissioner of labor, Carl Wright, to investigate the origins and causes of the strike. Wright reported that the hours were probably too long and that a fair bargaining scenario would be the best approach. Roosevelt called for a Washington conference for October 3rd. Roosevelt reminded them all that the crisis affected not only those in the room 
but the public and the economic health of the country. Mitchell said the UMW would have its members go back to work immediately if Bayer and the operators would agree to leave the strike issues to President Roosevelt to decide and would agree to abide by his decision. Are the decisions of a tribunal to be appointed by Roosevelt? But Bayer and his associates absolutely refused Roosevelt, who did not care for Bayer to start with, and was displeased by his audacity and lack of etiquette, who said of the meeting, Bitter language was used, and fists were waved in the air. It was reported the present chair was so near the window that from across the street he could be seen at intervals making gestures, and every time that he did, a clenched hand was seen waving above in gesticulations. Roosevelt later said of Bayer's arrogance, If it wasn't for the high office I hold, I would have taken him by the seat of the breeches and the nap of the neck and chucked him out of the window. Roosevelt dispatched Elihu Root, Secretary of War, to meet with J.P. Morgan on October 11th. The question was how to get the various parties together for mediation without the mine owners formally recognizing the union. They discussed a proposal in which the mine owners would request that the White House create an Amphitrite Coal Strike Commission, its members to be selected by the president. This they did, but the owners insisting they did not have to recognize the UMW and that no labor representative would take part in the arbitration. Roosevelt agreed, but he did slip in one chair for an eminent sociologist, a unionist, Edgar Clark. On October 23rd, a deal was reached that awarded the miners a 10% wage increase, a decrease of hours from 10 to 9, and set a permanent six-man mediation board. The contest between labor and capital had found its way to the conference room, but it was with increasing Regularity also beginning to turn up in court. What chance? Samuel Gompers complained. Have labor and laborers for fair play when the whole history of jurisprudence has been set against the laborers? There never was a tyrant in the history of the world but who found some judge to clothe in judicial form the tyranny exercised and the cruelty imposed on the people. Only eventually concluded that unions and strikes were not inherently bad, that to counter capital organized labor now confront organized capital. He felt and urged the need to maintain some means of federal strike arbitration. Some of Oni's suggestions would become enshrined in the Erdman Act of 1898, which acknowledged railroad unions' right to exist, offered contending sides in a labor dispute the option of federal arbitration and banished yellow dog contracts, which are agreements new hires were sometimes made to sign that forbid them from joining a union. Four years later, an industrial commission set up by President McKinley before his death delivered its recommendation, a retreat from the use of injunctions in labor disputes, the regulation of child labor, maximum hour laws, and a general recognition that labor unions were not devious combinations in restraint of trade or any other way criminal. It also denounced the hated yellow dog contracts. In 1908, the most anti-labor case had been 
Lochner versus New York in 1895, New York State legislatures passed the Bake Shop Act, regulating the hours of bakery workers. Many bakeries were located in substandard, poorly ventilated environments such as tenements and basements, where workers were forced to combat cockroaches and rodents and inhale flour dust for as many as 100 hours per week. The real issue in Lochner was viewed as an employer's contract rights, the liberty or freedom of contract. The result was the idea that employers and their workers were to negotiate and manage their relationship without government intrusion or regulations. The case was Lochner, who had a bakery in Utica, violated the law created by New York State's Bake Shop Act limiting the hours a baker could work to no more than 10 hours a day or 60 hours in a week. Lochner's attorney, Henry Weissman, argued that police powers did not allow a state to set regulations as it inferred with a business's liberty of contract. Justice Rupus Peckman of the Supreme Court wrote the 5-4 majority opinion limiting the hours in which a grown intelligent man may labor is meddlesome, interferences with the rights of the individual. Justice John Marshall Harlan suggested in dissent that there were significant health risks related to professional baking and that it was the job of state legislatures, not the Supreme Court, to investigate and make laws over such issues of workers' health and safety. Justice Oliver Holmes also joined the dissent. Holmes was criticizing the formula by which ordinary people were left to struggle for survival because the court had endowed corporations with the rights of individuals, thus denying efforts by the people's government to assist the people themselves. A ruling such as was handed down in Lochner was what Samuel Gompers had in mind when he had urged in his testimony before the Pullman Strike Commission that the Constitution conceived and written in pre-industrial age was being misused to impede the flow of needed reforms in labor relations. At the time of the Constitution Convention in 1787, Gompers said, Men knew scarcely anything of the existence of the power of steam. They knew nothing at all of electricity. They had no suspicion, even in the days of Adam Smith, of the steam engine and the electric motor or the telegraph. The telephone, the application of steam and electricity to the industry, and yet the law that had been made in the period are sought to be applied to modern industry and modern commerce. I submit that industry and commerce cannot go back to conform to old thoughts, old theories, old crusty customs of law, but that the law sooner must be changed to conform to the changed industrial and commercial conditions. It was revolution that saved France. It was reform that saved England. It is the question, what will save America? Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, 
ideas or just you want to say hi eh, or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. (music) 